Section 26 of the San Francisco Calamity by Earthquake and Fire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The San Francisco Calamity by Earthquake and Fire by Charles Morris. Chapter 26. Popocatepetl and Other Volcanoes of Mexico and Central America. Mexico is very largely a vast tableland, rising through much of its extent to an elevation of from 7,000 to 8,000 feet above sea level, and bounded east and west by wide strips of torrid lowlands adjoining the oceans. It is crossed at about 19 degrees north latitude by a range of volcanic mountains, running in almost a straight line east and west, upon which are several extinct volcanic cones, and five active or quiescent volcanoes. The highest of these is Popocatepetl, south of the city of Mexico and nearly midway between the Atlantic and the Pacific. East of this mountain lies Orizabo, little below it in height, and San Martin or Tuxtla, 9,700 feet high, on the coast south of Veracruz. West of it is Jorullo, 4,000 feet, and Colima, 12,800, near the Pacific coast. The volcanic energy continues southward toward the isthmus, but decreases north of this volcanic range. These mountains have shown little signs of activity in recent times. Popocatepetl emits smoke, but there is no record of an eruption since 1540. Orizabo has been quiet since 1566. Tuxtla had a violent eruption in 1793, but since then has remained quiescent. Colima is the only one now active. For ten years past, it has been emitting ashes and smoke. The most remarkable of these volcanoes is Jorullo, which closely resembled Monte Nuovo, described in Chapter 13, in its mode of origin. Popocatepetl, the hill that smokes in the Mexican language, the huge mountain clothed in eternal snows, and regarded by the idolaters of old as a god, towers up nearly 18,000 feet above the level of the sea, and in the days of the conquest of Mexico was a volcano in a state of fierce activity. It was looked upon by the natives with a strange dread, and they told the white strangers with awe that no man could attempt to ascend its slopes and yet live. But from a feeling of vanity or the love of adventure, the Spaniards laughed at these fears, and accordingly a party of ten of the followers of Cortes commenced the ascent, accompanied by a few Indians. But these latter, after ascending about 13,000 feet to where the last remains of stunted vegetation existed, became alarmed at the subterranean bellowings of the volcano, and returned, while the Spaniards still painfully toiled on through the rarefied atmosphere, their feet crushing over the scory and black-blazed volcanic sand, until they stood in the region of perpetual snow amidst the glittering, treacherous glaciers and crevasses, with vast slippery paved precipices yawning round. Still they toiled on in this wild and wondrous region. A few hours before, they were in a land of perpetual summer. Here all was snow. They suffered the usual distress awarded to those who dared to ascend to these solitudes of nature, but it was not given to them to achieve the summit, for suddenly, at a higher elevation, after listening to various ominous threatenings from the interior of the volcano, they encountered so fierce a storm of smoke, cinders, and sparks 
that they were driven back half-suffocated to the lower portions of the mountain. Some time after, another attempt was made, and upon this occasion with a definite object. The invaders had nearly exhausted their stock of gunpowder, and Cortes organized a party to ascend to the crater of the volcano to seek and bring down sulfur for the manufacture of this necessary of warfare. This time the party numbered but five, led by one Francisco Montano, and they experienced no very great difficulty in winning their way upwards. The region of Verdure gave place to the wild, lava-strewn slope, which was succeeded in its turn by the treacherous glaciers, and at last the gallant little band stood at the very edge of the crater, a vast depression of over a league in circumference, and one thousand feet in depth. Sulphur from the Crater Flame was issuing from the hideous abysses, and the stoutest man's heart must have quailed as he peered down into the dim, mysterious cavity to where the sloping sides were encrusted with bright yellow sulphur, and listened to the mutterings which warned him of the pent-up wrath and power of the mighty volcano. They knew that at any moment flame and stifling sulphurous vapor might be belched forth, but now no cowardice was shown. They had come provided with ropes and baskets, and it only remained to see who should descend. Lots were therefore drawn, and it fell to Montano, who was accordingly lowered by his followers in a basket four hundred feet into the treacherous region of eternal fires. The basket swayed, and the rope quivered and vibrated, but the brave cavalier sturdily held to his task, disdaining to show fear before his humble companions. The lurid light from beneath flashed upon his tanned features, and a sulphurous steam rose slowly and condensed upon the sides. But, whatever were his thoughts, the Spaniard collected as much sulphur as he could take up with him, breaking off the bright incrustations, and even dallying with his task, as if in contempt of the danger, till he had leisurely filled his basket, when the signal was given and he was drawn up. The basket was emptied, and then he once more descended into the lurid crater, collected another store, and was again drawn up. But far from shrinking from his task, he descended again several times, till a sufficiency had been obtained, with which the party descended to the plain. THE VOLCANO HORUYO No further back than the middle of the eighteenth century, the site of Horuyo was a level plain, including several highly cultivated fields, which formed the farm of Don Pedro de Horuyo. The plain was watered by two small rivers, called Quitimba and San Pedro, and was bounded by mountains composed of basalt, the only indications of former volcanic action. These fields were well irrigated, and among the most fertile in the country, producing abundant crops of sugar-cane and indigo. In the month of June, 1759, the cultivators of the farm began to be disturbed by strange subterranean noises of an alarming kind, accompanied by frequent shocks of earthquake, which continued for nearly a couple of months. But they afterward entirely ceased, so that the inhabitants of the place were lulled into security. On the night between the 28th and 29th of September, however, the subterranean noises were renewed with greater loudness than before, and the ground shook severely. The Indian servants living on the place started from their beds in terror, and fled to the neighboring mountains. Thence gazing upon their master's farm, they beheld it, 
along with a tract of ground measuring between three and four square miles, in the midst of which it stood, rise up bodily as if it had been inflated from beneath like a bladder. At the edges, this tract was uplifted only about thirty-nine feet above the original surface, but so great was its convexity that toward the middle it attained a height of no less than 524 feet. The Indians who beheld this strange phenomenon declared that they saw flames issuing from several parts of this elevated tract, that the entire surface became agitated like a stormy sea, that great clouds of ashes, illuminated by volcanic fires glowing beneath them, rose at several points, and that white-hot stones were thrown to an immense height. Giant chasms were at the same time opened in the ground, and into these the two small rivers above mentioned plunged. Their waters, instead of extinguishing the subterranean conflagration, seemed only to add to its intensity. Quantities of mud, enveloping balls of basalt, were then thrown up, and the surface of the elevated ground became studded with small cones, from which volumes of dense vapor, chiefly steam, were emitted some of the jets rising from twenty to thirty feet in height. These cones the Indians called ovens, and in many of them was long heard a subterranean noise resembling that of water briskly boiling. Out of a great chasm in the midst of those ovens, there were thrown up six larger elevations, the highest being 1,640 feet above the level of the plain, 4,315 above sea level, and now constituting the principal volcano of Horuyo. The smallest of the six was three hundred feet in height, the others of intermediate elevation. The highest of these hills had on its summit a regular volcanic crater, whence there have been thrown up great quantities of dross and lava containing fragments of older rocks. The ashes were transported to immense distances, some of them having fallen on the houses at Querétaro, more than forty-eight leagues from Horuyo. The volcano continued in this energetic state of activity for about four months. In the following years, its eruptions became less frequent, but it still continues to emit volumes of vapor from its principal crater, as well as from many of the ovens in the upheaved ground. EFFECT ON THE RIVERS The two rivers, which disappeared on the first night of this great eruption, now pursue an underground course for about a mile and a quarter, and then reappear as hot springs with a temperature of 126 degrees Fahrenheit. This wonderful volcanic upheaval is all the more remarkable from the inland situation of the plain on which it occurred, it being no less than 120 miles distant from the nearest ocean, while there is no other volcano nearer to it than 80 miles. The activity of the ovens has now ceased, and portions of the upheaved plain on which they are situated have again been brought under cultivation, and the volcano is in a state of quiescence. The crater of Popocatepetl, which rises to a height of 17,000 feet, is a vast circular basin, whose nearly vertical walls are in some parts of a pale rose tint, in others quite black. The bottom contains several small fuming cones, whence arise vapors of changeable color, being successively red, yellow, and white. All round them are large deposits of sulfur, which are worked for mercantile purposes. Orizaba has a little less lofty snow-clad peak. This mountain was in brisk volcanic activity from 1545 to 1560, 
but has since then relapsed into a prolonged repose. It was climbed in 1856 by Baron Mueller, to whose mind the crater appeared like the entrance to a lower world of horrible darkness. He was struck with astonishment on contemplating the tremendous forces required to elevate and rend such enormous masses, to melt them and then pile them up like towers, until by cooling they became consolidated into their present forms. The internal walls of the crater are in many places coated with sulfur, and at the bottom are several small volcanic craters. At the time of his visit, the summit was wholly covered with snow, but the Indians affirmed that hot vapors occasionally ascend from fissures in the rocks. Since then, others have reached its summit, among them Angelo Heilprin, the first to gaze into the crater of Mount Pele after its eruption. Eruptions in Nicaragua on the 14th of November, 1867, there commenced an eruption from a mountain about eight leagues to the eastward of the city of Leon in Nicaragua. This mountain does not appear to have been previously recognized as an active volcano, but it is situated in a very volcanic country. The outburst had probably some connection with the earthquake at St. Thomas, which took place on the 18th of November following. The mountain continued in a state of activity for about sixteen days. There was thrown out an immense quantity of black sand, which was carried as far as to the coast of the Pacific, fifty miles distant. Glowing stones were projected from the crater to an estimated height of three thousand feet. Central America is more prolific of volcanoes than Mexico, and the state of Guatemala in particular. One authority credits this state with fifteen or sixteen, and another with more than thirty volcanic cones. Of these, at least five are decidedly active. Tahumalco, which was in eruption at the time of the great earthquake of 1863, yields great quantities of sulfur, as does also Quesaltenango. The most famous is the Volcan de Agua, water volcano, so called from its overwhelming the old city of Guatemala, with a torrent of water in 1541. Nicaragua is also rich in volcanoes, being traversed its entire length by a remarkable chain of isolated volcanic cones, several of which are to some extent active. We have already told the story of the tremendous eruption of Coseguina in 1835, one of the most violent of modern times. The latest important eruption here was that of Ometepec, a volcanic mount on an island of the same name in Lake Nicaragua. This broke a long period of repose on June 19, 1883, with a severe eruption, in which the lava, pouring from a new crater, in seven days overflowed the whole island and drove off its population. Incessant rumblings and earthquake shocks accompanied the eruption, and mud, ashes, stones, and lava covered the mountain slopes, which had been cultivated for many centuries. These were the most recent strong delays of volcanic energy in Central America, though former great outflows of lava are indicated by great fields of barren rock, which extend for miles. End of chapter 26